0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element
2: FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 fm I'd like to welcome... Uh, my two guests to the show today who are participating with us. And it's great to have them with us. Uh, one uh, you may be familiar with, we have had him on the show just recently. In fact, uh, Jesse Thistle author and also a Métis instructor at uh, university, uh, York university in Toronto, my old school. Uh, and Jesse was on talking about, um, uh, well, we've had him on talking about his own book uh, from the ashes and um, and and uh, most recently, Jesse, what was it that we had you on most recently for? Do you remember what we were talking about?
0: See, David, yeah, it's uh, we were talking about how in this time of COVID, uh, we turn. I've been turning uh, to uh, traditional teachings uh, yeah. to as a way, way to connect and find hope, uh, and I wrote a Toronto Life article about that.
2: That is correct. Thank you for reminding me about that. And, you know, it's not a bad segue into what we're going to be somewhat talking about today with uh, the other person that is joining us on, on the line today, Dr. Janet Smiley. And she is a family physician and research chair at Unity Health Toronto and the University of Toronto. So uh, welcome, Janet.
1: Thank you um, for the invitation to uh, dialogue today.
2: Yeah, it's uh, absolutely our pleasure, and it's great to have you both with us. And we're going to be talking about homelessness, and and, and I guess specifically uh, about uh, Indigenous homelessness to some degree. Um, But I guess when you talk homelessness, you can't just specifically focus on Indigenous people. There are, of course, many, uh, many people that are homeless and and, and many, um, many people from all walks of life and all races that are are in this, you know. As I was preparing for this, the one thing I, I thought about, and, and Jesse, you addressed this to some degree um, in, in this homelessness issue, I, I, at least for Indigenous people, but I always wonder, how does, how does homelessness start? You know, like, where does, how, how is it possible that people end up homeless? And, you know, I've heard some stories, of course, in the past about even some very well uh, to do people that uh, were very had had high paying jobs. They were, you know, uh, they they were in the industry. They were doing wonderful things, and then something either personal or financial uh, just snaps for them. That that has that that moment that snaps them, and then they they're out on the street somehow. That, that that's where they want to be to some degree, just for for a small percentage of these people. Um, but. Um, uh, Dr. Smiley, how, how how did you come about getting involved and, and why get involved with this?
1: Uh, so for myself, uh, since very early on in my medical career, in fact, um, when I was a medical student, I was aware of the and um, interested in the health issues um, and the complex and diverse kind of pathways to homelessness. Um, So I was lucky as a medical student, actually I um, spent a little bit of time in Toronto working with an organization called Street Health um, and uh, was able to be mentored um, by some amazing community members um, and health service providers in terms of figuring out ways to engage um, with uh, diverse people Um, who are homeless. I think that uh, specifically in terms of working with Jesse and pulling together a team and perhaps setting a bit of a frame um, for Jesse and some other uh, colleagues, um, including big shout out to uh, Nancy LaLiberté, who kind of was the co-lead with Jesse in terms of the actual project. There was a group of my um, clinical colleagues, um, physicians um, and other health providers who were actually working on a national guideline um, to help support health and social service workers who are providing supports, programming, clinical care to people who are homeless. And I recognized that there was a gap and an opportunity to actually ensure that indigenous experiences of homelessness and perceptions of homelessness were factored in. Um, And I was concerned because although the pathways to homelessness, in my opinion, are incredibly diverse, there are some cross-cutting themes for First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people, unfortunately linked to colonization. Um, so, for example, like uh, complex trauma over time or in family of origin, um, undermining like of the fabric of our families. And at that time, I was troubled by a process that seemed to be using fairly non-indigenous standard research approaches to try to identify like what are the most important issues that need to be addressed and how can we make some recommendations. So physicians like myself, nurses, social service workers can do a better job of uh, caring and supporting people who are homeless. And then it was just this amazing thing where all of a sudden someone sent me Jesse's definition of indigenous homelessness, Mm. which of course identifies that um, this goes far beyond the lack of shelter. And of course it goes far beyond the lack of shelter for the every individual Um, that is homeless, but within, like applying an Indigenous frame and lens to this work. um, And that was really um, groundbreaking to me. Um, It's been taken up across the country. And I thought, hey, um, this is the person who can actually address this gap. So then I just was able to um, work to um, identify some resources and and pull a team together. Um, And then uh, Jesse took it from there.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Okay, so Jesse, um, uh, that was a really nice setup for to to launch into what you found, because you, in in your book, uh, from the ashes, and also from your own personal experience of being homeless, you you started to talk with other homeless people, and that's when you you found this link uh, that, uh, Dr. Smiley was talking about that links to colonialism, that links to, um, losing one's, uh, sense of, of, um, uh, who they are, their culture, their language, uh, their identity, and those, those things. Um, can you elaborate on that a little
0: bit? Yeah, sure. I was, uh, uh, going to York university and I was hired in 2017 by, um, the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness, to write the definition of Indigenous homelessness based on uh, consultation uh, with Indigenous stakeholders across the country. And they hired me because I had academic training and I had a background uh, with homelessness off and on for, since like 1997 to 2009, really, uh, were my years of on and off homelessness. And So I had this rich understanding of it and I had these connections through the Canadian Observatory and we started just talking to people and asking them what they believed homelessness for Indigenous peoples was. And we found like, yes, the houselessness or not having a residence is half of the issue. But the other half, the deeper, uh, the social context of homelessness Stem- stems back to dispossession of from land. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and this is historic and modern dispossessions like at Muskrat Falls or mm-hmm. Wet'suwet'en Territory. Uh, we see disconnection from culture, which we're all familiar with through places like residential schools and the 60s scoop. Then there was like transformation of worldviews. So indigenous people uh, lived and existed and saw their worldviews in a much different way before the introduction of Judeo-Christian hierarchical, patriarchal worldviews uh, that come mainly from the Bible. Um, and so we just went through this list and build out, build, built out these different dimensions of indigenous homelessness that speak to colonial interruptions over time that have actually severed healthy indigenous relations with community, with self, with the land, with our worldviews. And then we put it out and created this uh, definition that's now gone on to change some sectors. And Do- Dr. Smiley had read the definition and she contacted me and I think uh, October, November, 2017. And uh, she secured the funds from uh, inner city health associates to try and take that understanding of homelessness, this indigenous understanding, and change the way doctors administer care to homeless indigenous peoples on the ground using our worldviews, which is different. You know, a lot of the times when projects like these are, are imagined, um, they're not really indigenizing the way that they're thinking. They're doing a few things like, you know, changing the structured environment or, uh, some initial, um, you know, character changes in behavior, but it doesn't really change the way that people are thinking. And uh, we set out to do that with this Pequiuan Coming Home, Advancing Good Relations with Indigenous Peoples uh, project.
2: Now, one of the things I read that you uh, had said with this, and that is that by simply uh, uh, approaching this differently, uh, treating people, Indigenous people, in the health industry, uh, the way people are approaching, as you were just talking about, and, and dealing with them, can actually help to, to uh, reduce uh, homelessness. Why is it, wh- how do you think that, by just dealing with people in a different way, it can help to end homelessness?
0: Well, if we stop othering them, you know, seeing them as like them, and we as we, and we start to see ourselves as relatives within our worldview, which is Wakudawin. I talked about this extensively last time I was in, and for this territory, it's got a, a different name. The Anishinaabe know it by all my relations. If we see each other as embedded within this web and we treat each other as relatives, then there's no way that people can fall through the cracks. And that that's not just like doing that on an everyday uh, Interaction—that's like systematic change that has to happen mm. through through housing, through the medical establishments, coordinated access with uh, corrections, so that people aren't discharged into homelessness. We just saw them as relatives. We wouldn't let that those things happen to them, right? You treat your auntie or your your cookum or your your mushroom in a much different way than you do some stranger. Uh, so why don't we do that within the medical establishment and try to save lives and not ignore people to death when they come in looking for help, like Brian St. Clair?
2: Hmm. You know, uh, it's, it's interesting, and I, what I keep thinking about when you're saying that is uh, that relationship to the land and, and that worldview and the views that were different from a colonial perspective uh, in terms of land, for, for instance, let's say when, uh, you know, uh, people from the New World came over and uh, uh, from Europe came over to the New World, I should say, and, you know, a- approached indigenous people wanting to buy the land. And, and, and you know, as we all know, the, the thing is that indigenous people said, well, you can't buy it. You can't, how can you own it? You can't own this. But that didn't say that there wasn't a very strong connection with indigenous people and the land. In fact, that is, we all know, is what the, in many Uh, instances is the issue with indigenous people even today is the connection to the land and how important it is to have that connection just like you were saying that respect treating mother earth with with respect it doesn't stop at people it goes right into everything vegetables animals uh, uh, the earth itself Uh, dr smiley i'm just wondering um when you when you and 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 am i correct that you have a metis background as well Yes. And uh, so, can you tell us a little bit more about that background?
1: Sure. On my mom's uh, side, um, yeah, I have a very strong uh, Metis kin line um, that uh, spreads across the prairies and uh, even up into uh, northeastern Quebec. Um, so, the family main names being uh, Whitford, uh, Spence, um, mm-hmm. Sauve, um, for example. Um, so, actually, uh, we um, landed um, in Saskatchewan in Saskatoon, like a kind of Red River, Alberta, Metis settlement. Um, and then uh, into Saskatoon, that's where my, my grandma landed. Um, and my mom actually um, would have been one of very few Metis nurses. Um, uh, and she actually came out here to Toronto. So I spent most of my life um, here um, in uh, southern Ontario. in uh, Anishinaabe Haudenosaunee, um, here on Wendat territories.
2: Right. Now, taking the uh, the definition that Jesse came up with, uh, Jesse, you mentioned that some people are starting to work with this definition and, and you're starting to see some changes. What are you hoping and where do you see this going then in the future? I'll, I'll address that to each of you. So, Jesse, can we start with you?
0: Uh, yeah, like when we did this for these protocols and guidelines, we uh, I had to return to one of the oldest uh, relationships, which is like the Wampum Treaty between indigenous people and uh, guests or newcomers or settlers, whatever you want to call them. And I I was like, well, at one time we tried to work through this uh, very old Haudenosaunee law, and then later it it became British. And so I, I returned to those early treaty discussions and I looked at how those people were interacting with one another, according to indigenous worldviews, which worked through um, making relatives or uh, what And I noticed that there were four protocols mainly that were being followed uh, all the way through the history of this land. And I said, well, what if we take that and apply that to medical settings? How can we do that on the ground? Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of these protocols are still in place in indigenous uh, societies like when we meet up with one another, we treat each other a certain way because uh, we're visiting through what's called KOKin. Ke- and there's a very rigid uh, formalized type of interaction that indigenous people live and respect themselves by. Why don't we bring that in to medical settings? Why don't we treat each other according to the hospitality wampum? Why don't we do, Uh, situating ourselves like we have to do with land acknowledgements, there was a purpose for that. Mm -hmm. And we got away from that. And so by returning to these very fundamental agreements, we're actually hoping to revolutionize the way that doctors and homeless people interact within emergency and uh, family physician settings. Mm -hmm. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, and you know, when you think of it, it's a very... (laughs) practical, um, uh, low-tech, uh, but just a recognition of, of some very simple, basic things that you would, um, I, you know, you would expect from, I would think, from anyone, um, hopefully uh, dealing with another person from another culture. Uh, Dr. Smiley, um, have, has any of this been started to be implemented and, and what, and if so, have you seen changes thus far
1: sure like um i would say uh i know i've tried to uh, make sure i walk the talk in my day-to-day uh work as a clinician um because it starts with oneself right so it's easy to say the things and harder to do the things right um and i guess one of the things is like you um say david like these things like are beautiful and simple. um, And we would um, expect them hopefully of all humans um, who go into caring professions. Um, But the thing is um, just like our relationships with the land, right? Like are quite distinct perhaps um, from the ways that, um, you know, my um, European ancestors on my dad's side um, thought about relationships um, to land in terms of ownership you know, versus an Indigenous belief about a relative that one needs to care for. I think one of the big challenges I was concerned about was how will we actually get people to understand that these aren't just simple or romantic notions. They're simple, but they're um, very deep and rooted, right? And they're actually um, rooted in kind of sophisticated, localized protocols, right? And um, there's accountabilities um, that are also um very clear and strong so um and even explaining that for example to the editors cuz we talked about them as protocols and they just said well aren't these like just kind of um values for behavior and i said no actually if i don't do these protocols there's actually consequences so that's the piece but actually the way i was really worried how can we actually explain you know diverse like indigenous worldviews to non-indigenous people so that they change their behavior to align better. Right. That's a tall order. Right. Uh, But um, when Jesse came up with these four protocols, I was like, yes, this is brilliant, but there's still a little bit of work to do to actually then under explain the difference about how their protocols that are actually rooted for us, Jesse, myself, um, in our um, creamy tea, like worldview, right? Like uh, in social uh, systems. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's much more than a superficial notion of culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, then how do we implement it? So I still think that one of the risks about where the work is at now um, is that people will see them like as essentialized in the same way that people might like say, oh, well, that notion of indigenous people taking care of the land, as a relative, like is a bit romantic and it doesn't fit with, you know, our sophisticated notions of economy, right? But then we see um, with climate change, actually there is sophisticated knowledge systems associated with that, Um, like uh, principle and then the protocols by which we implement it in terms of every day trying to care for Mother Earth. Um, Mm -hmm. The other complexity is that our systems are not set up then for Indigenous protocols. So again, if we went back to caring for Mother Earth, well, um, you know, so my protocols might be to, um, like, uh, leave a very small footprint, right? Don't produce garbage, right? But um, that's a protocol um, that can be challenging. It's challenging for me to reduce um, garbage. Like, so for example, a very simple thing is, like, I try to never use bottled water right? But yeah, I have to actually be accountable and think about it. Mm. So how Mm. would we actually, within the current system, like of hospitals and shelters, you know, um, treat people as a relative? In fact, my very own college might be worried about that. Like we have protocols around gift exchange, right? Mm. I just was renewing my um, privileges at the hospital, right? So some of my professional regulatory bodies might be concerned, Mm. you know, if I was accepting gifts from patients because from like a Euro-Western perspective, it might be seen like uh, as inappropriate. Mm. But if um, from a Métis perspective, it would be seen as inappropriate not to accept it. So we get into some complexities. I think the other next steps that we have, right, in addition to continuing to finesse the messaging, so health and social service providers, working with Indigenous people who are experiencing homelessness broadly defined. Um, can start to actually harmonize and align what they do with knowledge systems is um, we want to actually, we were just about to try to um, like sit again with community because it's always an iterative process. I mean, um, Jesse has that very unique um, path, life path, where he actually brings lived experience and also um, a scholarly eye and research um, training. Um, And of course, um, like anything though, um, we need to make sure that we're still grounded in broader community perspectives. It'll be stronger. So we're looking to do that. And then the other thing is, as I mentioned, um, our team, like our Project Elder, Maria Campbell, Jesse, myself, Nancy, La Liberté, we all brought like a Métis Cree lens to this. And that was purposeful, right? It's Mm. not a national guideline. It's the best that we could do because we really wanted it to be Rooted, and if we really want to strongly root something in an indigenous um, like uh, laws and protocols, um, we need to be specific because there's a lot of diversity. So, we're hoping that we could support um, other um, nations or um, groups of people to um, like uh, go through um, you know uh, harmonized or parallel processes locally um, to um, like link. Um The experience of indigenous people in their territories um or places of living um who are homeless um, with like the actual natural laws and protocols of those territories, and then try to morph it into something that health and social service providers can understand and implement so mm. we got a bit of work to do, but um <laughs> yeah, really honored. Um, by the opportunity to work with Jesse on this. And uh, I learned a lot. So like I said, it's already in action, um, even if there's just one little um, half-breed doc um, trying to do it.
2: (laughs) Um, Now, but you also have uh, elders involved as well. Um, And um, how big of a, is it Jesse? is Is it yourself and Dr. Smiley? And I believe it's Maria Campbell?
0: Oh, yeah, Maria Campbell and Nancy La Liberté. So we're all Métis Cree from Saskatchewan area. That's where our ancestral or historic right. community links go to. And Maria is the the project elder or knowledge keeper mm-hmm. that kind of oversees direction and make sure that we're talking about our teachings in the correct way. Because we're still students too, right? I'm still learning from her.
2: Right. And, and, and so, guys, how does this fit into the bigger picture? Um, and what I mean by that is the Canadian Medical Association is, is somewhat involved somehow.
1: That's right. So um, actually, Inner City Health Associates, um, which is a local group of um, nurses, physicians and other um, team members um, that are supported in Ontario to do some outreach health services um, for um, the diverse communities of people um, in Toronto who are experiencing homelessness, which of course is, um, yeah, up to 10,000 plus people um, like uh, decided they wanted to work on some clinical practice guidelines. Um, so they put out a call. Um, And my colleague, another family doctor um, by the name of Kevin Potty, um, started working on some national guidelines. um, And they came out in the Canadian Medical Association Journal um, in the same issue as the commentary that Jesse and I did. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, how the Canadian Medical Association Journal is involved is they actually have been publishing the guidelines and they um, were kind enough to support Jesse and I in writing this commentary then on the um, project that we're doing. We started a little later um, than the large group. And what's interesting, again, it just shows like um, how often indigenous processes um, need distinct methods and pathways um, from a larger um, kind of general Canadian process, um, whatever that means. Um, So yeah, it was our elder Maria right away, Jesse and I said, well, we're trying to write these clinical practice guidelines. And she said, okay, we'll focus it on like a, like a, this Métis Cree um, mm-hmm. perspective. So we actually had to go back to our advisory council and say, is it okay to focus it and in inner city health associates there? Wait a minute, you said you were gonna do something that would be more broadly relevant. And we said, well, it'll be more broadly relevant because we'll work together. And we were so honored that Maria took on that role of project elder. Um, And uh, guided us through a ceremonial path to do the work and made sure we are really grounded in um, local community, um, along with Jesse. Um, But yeah, then the idea is, well, there's not one moccasin that fits all people, right? One size does definitely not fit all for our diverse Indigenous communities. And it would, um, yeah, not honour the incredible, like, social Mm -hmm. diversity and richness um, that we
0: have.
2: Uh, That's great, guys. Uh, We're going to have to leave it there. Our time is running out, but it's been a pleasure to have you both join us uh, on Moment of Truth uh, and Element FM to discuss this really important issue on homelessness uh, for Indigenous people. So, uh, uh, Nyawa miigwech, and uh, thank you very much for joining us here on the show.
0: Thank you.
1: Hi, hi. Thanks.
2: All right. Take care, and uh, we look forward to uh, getting an update from you guys again.
1: Okay. Thanks so much.
2: Take care. bye -bye. Bye Bye-bye. And that was the voices of Dr. Janet Smiley. She's a family physician and research chair at Unity Health Toronto and the University of Toronto, as well as Métis a Cree author and professor at York University, Jesse Thistle. Thanks for listening to this part of Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you back here shortly right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element.
2: Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to 1065 ELMNT FM in Toronto and 957 ELMNT FM in Ottawa and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 1065 ELMNT FM or 957 ELMNT FM, listen on your device of choice anywhere across the country 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is my pleasure to welcome two guests to the show joining me here. And it also happens to be that they are relatives of mine. But it's really a pleasure to have uh, Christian and Sherry Levesque joining me on the show today. Welcome.
3: Hi. Hi, thanks.
2: Now, the reason you guys are here, and I really appreciate you doing this uh, very much, is that uh, have, having uh, been shut down Uh, Schools shut down. COVID-19 has affected us in so many ways. And uh, both of you are working in areas that have specifically been uh, in the news uh, because of the situation we are dealing with. Uh, One, uh, Christian, you are uh, a nurse. You live in the Windsor area, but you travel across the border and work in the Detroit area, I believe.
3: Yes. Yeah, I do.
2: How, How long have you been doing that?
3: Um, I've been doing that for about two years now.
2: Okay. And uh, Sherry, you are a teacher, and of course, uh, teaching has changed dramatically. Uh, it's been in the news quite a bit, of course, ever since uh, that the shutdown came into effect.
4: Yes, it's changed quite a bit.
2: And uh, what uh, what level of education are you teaching?
4: Um, I teach high school. Uh, I have an English teaching line, and I'm special education.
2: Mm. Okay. So, uh, Christian, let's start with you. Nursing, uh, you know, when this all happened, uh, you may remember that the, the premier uh, sort of brought this whole question, the whole question of just crossing the border uh, came into effect. There was a lot of talk about uh, about that. And specifically, nursing was, uh, was pointed out because it is something that, uh, I guess many people didn't consider that, that people living cro- close, close to borders, such as Windsor, Detroit, where there would be back and forth essential workers happening or, and, and, and taking part in employment across the border, back and forth in both countries. Uh, so how has this been for you, um, you know, going back and forth, first of all?
3: so at the beginning we were definitely really concerned we weren't sure how that was going to affect our commute back and forth um even on a regular day sometimes it can take an hour an hour and a half to get over the border um i leave really really early for work a lot of the time but Mm. they've actually been really supportive for us um obviously the traffic is is nothing because it's only Mm. the essential workers crossing now um they tried several different systems to try to get us ac- across quicker. I know the Canadian side at one point had us using like little essential worker worker signs, so we were kind of like pre-approved to cross. Um, they always ask us the COVID questions, but they try to make us get through as quickly as possible. And my commute's actually cut down quite a bit, which is fantastic. And actually, recently the um, the bridge just decided to absorb tolls for essential workers as mm. well. So I'm actually not paying to cross as of, I think, a couple of days ago, which is fantastic as well. So they've actually been really supportive of us crossing.
2: I, I didn't even consider that, that there might be costs to actually going back and forth uh, to pay those those toll charges. Um, well, that's, that's good news. Um, now, as you say, when you cross, you have to answer the, the questions. Do you at least have like some kind of a, of a fast lane or something you could enter? And like you said, the traffic isn't an issue at this point in time. But
3: Right. I, I do have a nexus. Mm. Um, I know a, like about half the staff has nexus, the other half, they just use their passports. But mm. um, there is usually two lanes and you can you can go through the nexus lane mm. if you're that's kind of pre-approved traveler as well.
2: And what what kind of uh, nursing are you doing over there?
3: Uh, I'm an oncology nurse. I work on a medical surgical oncology floor.
2: Okay, so when this all happened, um, what were the precautions that that were brought up? On, are they different, first of all, on either for you on either side of the border in terms of what you're hearing?
3: Um, well, just, just for nurses, remap- we, uh, we are wearing masks at all mm. times, mm. which is, it's definitely new. I mean, we, we take precautions with certain patients, um, but now it's everyone we're wearing an N95 mask at all times just mm. to protect ourselves and to protect the patients. Um, a lot of the times the patients are wearing masks as well, which is their, their own choice. They're not required to, mm. uh, but we see that a lot of the time now as well. Um, at first, it was a lot harder because the testing wasn't great. But as of right now, we are testing all patients before sending them up. So we have a bit more of a safer a safer way to know if people are negative or positive before we're working with them. Um, whereas before, it was more of a guessing game and you kind of just were treating all patients as they were positive. You were mm-hmm. wearing, you know, the gowns and the hairnets and the masks and droplet filters and all that as well.
2: How long does it take you to get to work? How long is the commute?
3: It's about
2: an hour. Okay. Um, that's, you know, pretty normal, I guess, for traveling and commuting back and forth to work these days.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, when this all happened, uh, I'm guessing things have calmed down a, a little bit to some degree, but what was the, you know, I, everyone was feeling some stress. Um, you, as a, as, a, as a frontline worker, someone involved in, in the care of people, Uh, and in hospitals. Um, How would you say the general sense of of stress was at the time when when all of this happened?
3: Uh, It was definitely quite high. I know when we first started there was a lot of stress in regards to what was going to happen with the border. There was a lot of stress Mm. with whether or not we should be staying with our families. Um, At the beginning I actually moved out of mm-hmm. my, my parents' house, and I was staying with some other nurses who were also staying away from their families as well. Mm-hmm. So that was really stressful in the beginning. Um, and then also for the patients as well, not being able to have visitors put a huge stress on on our care in, in that sense, because people having cancer treatments, and not having their family around, um, it just puts an extra level of of strain on everyone, you know, you have the worried family members calling frequently and you're trying to update everyone and making sure that the patients are able to keep in contact with their families and it just put extra strain on them, which was which was very stressful as well. So big changes definitely at the beginning.
2: Mm. And now?
3: And now it's, it's starting to slow down. Um, I know some places are starting to allow visitors in slowly, which is good. Um, I've actually moved back in with my family, we're just taking all the necessary precautions that we have to, um, I think there's a little bit uh, less of the fear now that we have a little bit better idea of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And we, we have better protocols in place now too, I think, than at the beginning when it was just, no, nobody knew what was happening.
2: Right. And how have you been finding it in terms of of getting the necessary, you know, personal protective equipment uh, for yourself and and others in the work environment?
3: Um, So it's we've just changed the way we do things. So with masks, generally, they're one use. You throw them out between each patient. Mm. Um, Now we get one mask and we use it until it's dirty and then Mm. we get rid of it. Um, I have not ever had an issue asking for protective equipment as if I ask for it, they give it to me. Um, but we definitely have changed the guidelines on which we use this equipment for sure. Um, including the droplet masks. Like I have one that's just mine and we reuse it instead of, you know, throwing them out between each patient use.
2: Mm. What do you think from your perspective in light of everything that's been going on and the stories we hear uh, in the news that are coming out around uh, COVID nineteen, healthcare. Is there something that 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 we are not hearing that you you think would be uh, helpful for people to know, or that you 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 feel is 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 not getting out there?
3: Um, I think a big thing is just the fact that a lot of people are not coming into the hospital hospitals now, and I, I'm wondering where those people are going. I know. They've stopped a lot of elective surgeries, a lot of, um, I mean, cancer treatments, unless they were already in the works are, are being postponed. Um, and that's something that worries me as, as people aren't getting treatment because they're afraid to come into the hospitals because of COVID. So I'm wondering where are all these other sick people? Are they just staying home and not getting treatment? That's, that's probably the biggest thing mm. I'm seeing in the hospitals.
2: Uh, I guess it must have also, and you, you know, again, uh, almost it goes without saying, but but for for people in 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 the area that you're caring for, um, and other areas as well, but not being able to have visitors uh, would have been quite stressful, not only for the families but also for the the uh, the, the, the 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 patients.
3: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, It was it was very emotionally difficult, especially I remember I was there the very first day when there were families there and we actually had to kick them out and Mm. that was really, really hard because we've never had to do that before. Mm. And I mean, just having a family member with cancer, let alone in the hospital getting treatment is stressful enough. um, But having to be like, you have to leave and we don't know when you can come back and see them again was, Mm -hmm. was very, very difficult. Um, and I know it put a lot of stress on our patients. Um, I had a patient that stopped, stopped eating, stopped going for walks, stopped doing the necessary things to, that he needed to do to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, so it actually affected his care in a way because he mentally he wasn't able to, you know, continue doing the things he needed to do to improve. And especially in in bone marrow transplant, which is where I was at first. Um, We have patients that are there for very, very long periods of time and can be very, very sick. So that was, it was really, really difficult for a lot of those patients, not having their family members there and for the families as well.
2: My guest is Kristen and Sherry Levesque, mother and daughter, uh, workers in the Windsor area and uh, living in the Windsor area. Uh, Christian being a nurse uh, living in Windsor, working in Detroit area. And uh, Sherry, a school teacher. Please stay with us. We'll be right back here on Element FM and Moment of Truth right after this.
0: Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
2: Element, Element, Element FM. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa and 106.5 in Toronto. And anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNT FM or 95.7 ELMNT FM. My guests on the show are Kristen and Sherry Levesque, they are a mother-daughter, and they live in the Windsor area and uh, work in the Windsor area. We've just been talking with Christian, who also is a nurse and, and works across the border in the Detroit area, and uh, also... Her mom uh, sherry who is a high school teacher and they have graciously been uh, able to join us on the show and i very much appreciate them doing that to give us their perspective on uh, what's been happening in their lines of work with covid 19 sherry uh, as as a teacher uh you know it's been uh we've heard so much lately around uh homeschooling and and parents trying to deal with homeschooling and uh, and also are the schools going to reopen and of course I'm just, just sort of paraphrasing all the stuff we've been listening to. We've heard a lot about the frustration that, that parents uh, have had about uh, trying to deal with this last part of the term before the end of the year. Uh, we, You know, every week, every day, there was new updates about, about what was happening. Um, but I think the one thing that uh, I know, even from a co-worker uh, here at the station mentioned, that I think there's probably been a lot more... Um, uh, not only awareness, but respect for the work that, that you and other teachers do in in our province?
4: Um, I think so, especially at the beginning. Uh, you know, there were all these funny memes like teachers should be paid a million dollars a year <laughs> because these uh, parents were trying to, uh, you know, trying to do the, the work of the teachers at home. So yeah, there was, there is was, has been a little bit of that uh, appreciation for what we do. Um, and understanding that when we were kind of fighting against mandatory online learning, this is mm-hmm. why. Because we right. know a lot of students can't do it on their own, you know?
2: Yeah. Um,
4: and this is just showing that. This is showing how hard it is for some kids to do online learning.
2: Uh, now, the other thing, of course, is that because this was thrust upon all of us, and, and of course both both students, parents, and teachers, and uh, the, the, whole, the whole system, um, it it's, it's put us all in a position of trying to find a way to make it work for now um, and still sort of unclear about what's going to be happening in September. But what have you been finding from your side of the story? We've been hearing a lot about, about the parents and the frustration uh, from the parents' side. What have you guys been finding at your end in terms of trying to deliver the lessons, trying to deliver education, trying to stay on top of, uh, you know, work with your students and parents?
4: Mm-hmm. Well, at the beginning a lot of teachers were trying to do uh you know, I'm talking about my colleagues at least, were trying to do online meetings, you know, mm. so at least three times a week they wanted the kid to be on at eleven o'clock and, and uh to do their lessons live like that. But we found right from the beginning that students weren't the majority of students were not engaging that way. Mm. Um a lot of them were sleeping, you know, till twelve mm. or one. So if the teacher mm-hmm. had the lap at 11 a.m. they weren't going on to it so from after the first couple weeks a lot of teachers moved to not having the live uh, sessions and making it more recorded videos that the students can watch in their own time and then do the work um, doing the work on their own Uh, and then just having email where they could email the teacher and and see when they could meet them Um, the other issue has been there are some students who have not engaged even since March 13th.
0: Mm.
4: Like, and I know I'm in a different position because um, I'm a spec ed teacher. So mm. in my role at the school is I have a room where students come down for help. So the first couple weeks I spent a lot of time just calling, calling, calling. I wanted to make sure all my students knew where each of their classes were, like which platform the teacher was using, making sure that they had laptops. I had to go into the school uh, one day and uh, hand out Chromebooks uh, to students okay. who didn't have any equipment at home. Mm-hmm. So just trying to make sure they were all able to get started. Um, but even since then, a lot of them have not engaged. And that is probably the most difficult thing. Um, you call and you call and you email. Um, but there's there are a handful of students who aren't, who aren't engaging.
2: Mm-hmm. So, um, and the other thing is, just from a technological perspective, as you just mentioned, some students don't have uh, the, uh, a laptop or, or uh, and kind of a computer they can, they can work with. Uh, so you have to get the students those things. But there might be other areas where there are technical difficulties of even a student with that equipment getting online or participating in that way.
4: Yes we have our board has a lot of rural students mm. and yeah in some of those areas the internet's just not that reliable mm-hmm. um, or you know you have four kids in the family sharing um, right. sharing one piece of equipment. so there's been a lot of issues for the students. Um, I had one student who was working away and then um, had to go to work right mm-hmm. so all of a sudden she wasn't doing her schoolwork because now she had to work full-time. Mm. Um, so it, there's so, so many. So many things to consider.
2: What would you say, if, if anything, at this point in time, that we we are learning from this experience, from your perspective, in terms of uh, pluses and minuses of of this uh, this experience?
4: Um, pluses. <laughs> um.
2: I, here's a, as an example. The the other thing we've been hearing more and more about and I'm sure you've heard this, is that uh, a lot of people don't want to go back to what we were calling normal. You know, uh, there's, there's talk about more people working from home, you know, using the home as the office. That means uh, exactly the kind of thing that students are doing would be, you know, uh, using school or the work uh, home office to do that kind of thing. Um, so are, are you seeing the opportunity at least to see how to improve Uh, This opportunity for using this kind of thing should it ever be required again in the future?
4: Oh for sure because we were just thrown into it right Mm. so it was scrambling trying to get this and I'm sure um, All teachers are picking up some tips and you know uh, learning a lot of different ways to improve this Should we have to go back to it in September? I'm sure it will be uh, More smooth Uh, the problem was too. There was a lot of different messaging coming from the from the government So we Mm. weren't always sure what we were expected to do right Um, it first, it was like, don't do, don't do synchronous learning because the kids might not be able to be on at that time. And then all of a sudden it came out, oh, we should all be doing it. You know, we should be Mm -hmm. doing synchronous learning. So there's some mixed messages there. Uh, but definitely I think a lot of people have gotten comfortable. A lot of teachers have gotten a lot more comfortable with technology. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think. They'll definitely be smoother if we have to go back into this again at some point. I know I'm, I'm you know, I'm an older <laughs> teacher, and I definitely have learned a lot of new programs that help me to, uh, to engage the students.
2: Oh, you're not that old. But anyway, the point is <laughs> that I'm glad you brought that up because that's another, that, that is something else that we did hear about is the, the, that some teachers have been struggling with the technology uh, mm-hmm. in, 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 ter- in terms of being able to deliver their uh, their, uh, their, their, their classes uh, to their classes.
4: Yes. I was lucky because as a, as a resource teacher, I, I try to keep up with all, what all the teachers are using in their classes. So, you mm-hmm. know, I was... Pretty familiar with a lot of things, but I, you know, I had to learn how to use Google Classroom and I set up a classroom and I'm um, doing Google Meets with students. So, you know, it was a learning curve, but definitely right. more comfortable now with all that. Mm. And, and uh, it- yeah, with Spec Ed, it was interesting because like trying to do my role, which my role is working with kids individually. Um, but usually in my room I'll have you know five to ten kids to work with at a time, but when I'm doing a Google Meet, because they're all doing different classes, I can only meet with mm. one student at a time. Right. So it, it kind of limits how many students I'm able to work with. Uh, maybe five students a day if I'm booking them each for an hour. Mm. Whereas in my classroom I might meet with twenty students in a day or twenty five. Right. So that that was a little challenging.
2: Right. And what would you say if there is anything that uh, from all the news stories that we've been hearing about on either side, from your perspective, what, what, uh, what do you think we haven't been hearing?
4: Um, I, think, I think when the government said that the students' marks can't go down from March 13,
2: mm-hmm. that they
4: can only go up, I don't right. think they realized that that was going to make a lot of students disengage um, ah, yes. from right. doing any work. And I think a lot of people maybe don't realize teachers don't like that. Like teachers, we want the kids, like we want to be engaging. We want to be teaching. That's what we, that's what we want to do. Right. So hopefully if we go back, if we have to go back to this in September, that there'll be a way to, you know, make sure, ensure that the kids are learning. Um, It's difficult. Teachers want to be teaching. You know, we want want the kids to be doing the work.
2: Of course. Um, Again, this, This whole thing being, you know, unprecedented situation for all of us hasn't happened in 100 years or so. Um, So it is something new and we are all learning from it. Well, I'm sure we're all learning from this. Um, We're just about out of time. But just before we go, I would like to ask the two of you this. How have you been finding it as both people in, you know, this living in home together, mother and daughter, but also within this this COVID-19 situation? Um, how have you been finding that, uh, in terms of being, you know, just, just living in that household and, uh, Christian, you're going to work in this environment. You say you've been, you know, dealing with this and, and working with it, but how do you, how do you think that, uh, what's the routine you guys have down together to, to make sure that you both are safe, to make sure that, you know, you can both can continue in a healthy way?
3: Uh, so so at the beginning, I, I wasn't living at home, um, but once we kind of established there was less risk and I moved back in, uh, I started, you know, like coming into the garage. I would have yeah. a whole system where I would undress in the garage, bring everything yeah. in, put it directly in the laundry, go straight to the shower, you know, rinse off, yeah. um, take Clorox wipes to everything that I had or leave it out in the garage. Um, I didn't want to bring anything from the hospital. Mm. Into, into the house, and, and I still do that in a sense. I know we, we have a lot less COVID patients, and uh, we only work with negative ones now, so I feel like I'm actually a lot uh, lower risk than even mm. maybe my mom who goes out to the grocery store mm. and interacts with, with people who, and don't know whether or not they have it. Whereas I know the people I'm interacting with don't,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, right. most likely, other than I mean false positives, but we're still wearing the masks and the droplet shields just in case, which is is great. So I feel like um, I'm quite low risk at this point. And then anything that I have that has
4: been in the hospital, I make sure it doesn't, you know, come into the home environment. Mm. And then Kristen uh, wasn't going out. Like I I do all the grocery shopping. I do all the shopping. Mm. Um, She was staying home uh, just to, you know, I was working in healthcare. She didn't want to go to stores and things like that. So I did all the grocery shopping. Right. cross border as
3: well. I know anyone that returns to Canada is supposed to stay home for 14 days. So I've kind of just been, you
4: know, limiting myself going out in that sense. Mm. It's hard. I mean, my son works in the public as well. And he's been working the whole time. So you know,
2: yeah.
4: I figure it, it if one of them got it, it was, we probably all would get it like, you know, it's mm. you can't disinfect constantly sure. every surface. So right. uh, we've just been lucky so far, I guess
2: well uh so my my last question then uh is to you sherry as as the mother of two as you just mentioned you have two kids that are working and going out there uh how how has this made you feel what, what kind of a how how's your stress been
4: Uh at the beginning i was really stressed when the you know the news kept coming out and it was scary you know mm-hmm. and they, they scared you and i was really worried about kristen mm-hmm. uh being a nurse um I had heard of people being uh, very rude to people in scrubs, mm-hmm. you know. Um, especially crossing the border, a lot of people in Windsor were like, "Stay away! Don't come back to our country," you know. So um, mm-hmm. that stressed me out a little, and I, I was worried about her. And I,
2: mm-hmm. I,
4: I don't, don't stop anywhere, you know. I don't want anybody to, to uh, say anything to. Right. And uh, you know, I was worried about my son Spencer as well because same thing. Um, yep. It's kind of reduced. I just feel a little bit better now. Um, not sure why. Maybe it's just time, but I'm not worried as worried as I was mm. at the beginning. At the beginning, it was stressful, and I had some anxiety about either one of them uh, catching it.
2: Right. Well, I want to thank both of you for taking the time to join me on the show and, uh, and share your stories with us and, and um, bring us up to date to, to give us more of a, an idea of what it's like for both of you, uh, especially with, you know, we're not hearing a lot about that cross-border situation as it is now. So I want to thank both of you uh, very much for joining uh, me on the show and, and sharing this with us.
4: You're welcome.
2: Thanks for having us. <laughs> it's been a pleasure and also really nice to hear your voices. Yeah. You do, you do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys take care and uh, thanks once again.
4: Thanks. Bye. Thank you. All bye. right,
2: take care. Bye bye. And that is the voices of Kristen and Sherry Levesque, mother and daughter, uh, workers in the Windsor area and uh, living in the Windsor area. Uh, Kristen being a nurse, uh, living in Windsor, working in Detroit area. And uh, Sherry, a school teacher. And we appreciate them both very much for taking the time to join us on the show.
0: This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.